This morning, our New Year's meditation is going to be Habakkuk 3. We want to read Habakkuk 3 under the heading of Faith with an Uncertain Future. Faith with an Uncertain Future from Habakkuk 3. Let's give our attention now to the reading of God's Word. Beginning in verse 1, a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to Shigianoth. O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Teman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence and plague followed at his heel. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of cushion and affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses, on your chariots of salvation? You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging water swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and the moon stood still in their place. At the light of your arrows as they sped, at the flashing of your glittering spear, you marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people. For the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. You pierced with his own arrows the head of his warriors, who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places to the choir master with stringed instruments. This is the word of the Lord. May we receive it with a believing heart. Well, dear congregation, this morning, as we've already reflected on in our pastoral prayer, uh, we have come to the dawn of a new year. I imagine for some of you, this new year holds uh, some excitement, new opportunities, new things to look forward to. 
New Year's has long been celebrated and recognized as a fresh start, as a new beginning for people. But one thing that I've been consistently uh, reflecting on personally this holiday season is how for many people the holidays actually can be a time uh, that can be quite hard. For some of us in this room, maybe this new year does not fill us with eager expectation, but this new year fills us with uncertainty. We may not know what God has for us in the future. Our plans may not be definite. And so when we think about this idea of coming to another year, it fills us rather with anxiety than it does with hope. And so this new year, New Year's morning, we want to turn to the prophecy of Habakkuk. Short book in the Minor Prophets, towards the end of the Old Testament. And prophecy may in some ways be a bit of a misnomer when we consider this book. It's been long noted by scholars that Habakkuk's book, it seems to read more as a conversation between Habakkuk and God than a declaration of prophecy. We don't know much about the prophet. He doesn't tell us that much. We don't know about his family or his upbringing or what tribe he's a part of. But in his conversation with God, he reveals that he is living in Judah prior to the Babylonian exile. And if you remember the reason why Judah was exiled... They were exiled because there was a great neglect of the law. He says in chapter 1, verse 4, when he gives his first word to the Lord, his first complaint, if you will, as it says in the heading of the ESV Bible, he says the law is paralyzed. Justice never goes forth. 1, verse 4. He's living in a time of great violence and oppression. That's chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. How long shall I cry out, violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? End of verse 3. Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. He's living in a time of great oppression. Being ruled by negligent leaders. So he cries out, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help? And do you not hear, O Lord, or cry to you, violence will you not save? Here we're seeing Habakkuk, much like Job, questions the sovereign goodness of God amidst injustice. He's questioning the sovereign goodness of God amidst the injustices he sees in his world, amidst the injustices that he sees in his community and even in his own life. And remarkably, in chapters 1 and 2, God responds to Habakkuk. But look how he responds. If you have a Bible, turn with me to chapter 1, verse 6. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans. That would be the southern portion of the nation of Babylon. Here Habakkuk is complaining about the sin of his day, and it's as if God has said to him in chapter 1, 
Habakkuk, you are right. Your nation is sinful. There is injustice. They are violent lawbreakers. So Babylon is coming. Put yourself in Habakkuk's shoes this morning. If you complained about injustice in your family, in your church or your community, violence in your nation, and the Lord responds, you're right, so judgment is coming. It's pretty clear that this isn't the comforting word Habakkuk was expecting. This book is a book of lament. He weeps. Habakkuk, more than any other prophet, I think in the Old Testament, actually exhibits fear. He has anxiety about the future. From his perspective, he does not see how God can take something that is so evil and make it right. And that's why it's important for us to reflect on this passage this New Year's morning. I know that in 2022, we have had the same questions, haven't we? How can God's goodness coincide with the evil that we see in our present world? Allow me to put my finger on a sore spot with you. How can God's goodness coincide with the passing of Proposal 3? How can God's goodness coincide with the martyrdom of thousands of Christians in Africa? How can God's goodness coincide with the death of family and friends? How can God's goodness coincide with broken relationships? Whatever it be, we have the same questions. Lord, where are you? We're not that different from Habakkuk. We have uncertainties about the future. But what we need to see is that the prophet in a revelation from God, then resolves to trust God, even in the uncertainty for the future. The prophet will take us through his logic and how he comes to that place of trust. In these uh, three movements, we'll see in verses 1 through 2, the prophet's prayer, then the prophet is astounded, and then the prophet is consoled. The prophet prays, is astounded, and is consoled. And you could almost add one word to each point. See, the prophet prays for salvation. The prophet is astounded with salvation. And he is consoled by salvation. But let's look at his prayer. Habakkuk's problem begins when he is seeing what's happening around him. God assured him that he would intervene into Habakkuk's life, but it really wasn't the way that Habakkuk would have expected. This has resulted in uncertainty for him and his family and his country, What's left for him to do? The Lord tells him in chapter 2, verse 4. If you have a Bible, look at this verse. It's the most important verse in this whole book. Habakkuk 2, verse 4. The end of verse 4. But the righteous shall live by faith. 
The Lord tells Habakkuk, in light of this future, you need to trust me. That's what wholehearted, or that's what faith is. Faith is a wholehearted trust. And so we see in this prayer, Habakkuk bows himself under divine revelation. O Lord, verse 2, chapter 3, verse 2, I have heard the report of you. That word report used there is the same word that the Queen of Sheba uses in 1 Kings 10 when she comes to Solomon and says to him, I have heard of your fame throughout the world. That word fame is report. Likewise, after God reveals himself to Job, in chapter 42, Job says, I have heard of you by the report of the ear, but now my eyes see you. The point that Habakkuk is making is that when I looked at the world from my vantage point, I was filled with confusion and perplexity, but I have heard your report. And it reordered his perspective. Look what he says in verse 2, the second half of it. O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work. O Lord, do I fear. Our ESV Bible does very well in translating the word, but I found this a little complicated, so allow me to rephrase it for you. I have heard you report, and now I fear you. I think that's the sense of what Habakkuk is saying. That having heard what God's will is, having heard the word of God, he now bows to, he now submits to God. Now, there's some discrepancy here amongst scholars about, well, what is the report that this prophet is referring to? Some say maybe it's the rest of the Bible. Others say maybe it's just the preceding two chapters. That's the report he's referring to. Uh, I'm going to take the middle road here. I don't really care. What he's really saying is, I have heard your holy word. I have heard your scripture. In meditating on God's word, his life was put in order. He began to see things God's way. Or as we have said in our tradition historically, he begins to think God's thoughts after him. Isn't the application here so simple? My brothers and sisters, we need to be a people who read the word. Habakkuk's very clear. He doesn't understand the will of God. He doesn't understand why God, in answer to the evil he sees in his society, will bring an even greater evil. The Chaldeans. Though God would use them, surely that's not better. He doesn't understand. But what a reminder for us to read the Word even when we don't understand. Sometimes I hear young people say, I don't read the Bible because it doesn't make sense to me. But here we're getting an interesting word of application here. Read the Word. Even when it doesn't seem to make sense to us. Even when we're young. Audio book, if you have to, just get the will and the Word of God into your system. 
This is how you transform your mind. This is how you transform your life. Stay close to the Lord. The prophet says when he considers the report of what God has done, he stands in awe. That's his first portion of his prayer. The second portion of his prayer is then he begins to pray for others. He accepts that Babylonian judgment is coming for the people of God. But he doesn't end his prayer there. But he prays for salvation. Notice with me in verse 2 the context in which he sets his prayer. He says, in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years. In wrath. He's saying in the midst of the judgment that's coming. In the midst of the Babylonian exile. He prays three things, doesn't he? Look with me at verse 2. He prays that the Lord would revive his work. He prays that God would reveal his work. And he prays that God would remember his mercy. Revive, reveal, remember. That word revive, it's in the imperative. Imagine an exclamation point at the end of it. Revive. Congregation, when something needs to be revived, what is the status of it? Well, it's either dead or it's near dead. Here the prophet is praying that even when we're dead in Babylon, even when our faith is crushed, even when we have no hope, even when everything is gone and we've lost the battle, revive us, Lord. Remember, Babylon's oppression was going to be severe. They were hell-bent on destruction. There would be bloodshed upon bloodshed. What is he saying? Lord, save. Save us. And then he prays to reveal in the midst of the years, make it known. He prays that as God has revealed to him that this is all according to God's plan for God's good purposes, that these people would also know that. Here we don't often understand the ways of God. His purposes or His plans. But he's saying, cast your eyes to heaven. Pray for understanding. Don't just wash your hands of it when you don't know something and never think about it again. Here the prophet is reminding us, keep looking to the Lord. Revive, reveal, and look at the final petition. The Lord, or the prophet prays that the Lord would remember his mercy. Notice here, judgment is coming. They will stand before Babylon for their sins and he pleads God's mercy. He doesn't say, I don't deserve this judgment because I'm a good guy. He doesn't say, I don't deserve this judgment because my grandma was a Jew and I grew up a Jew and you know we're, we always go over for coffee and treats after you know synagogue or anything like that. That's not what he's pleading before the Lord. He doesn't focus on any merit of his own or any merit of his people. What is he saying? The only hope of salvation in judgment is if God remembers his mercy. The Hebrew word for mercy, reham, 
means to have compassion upon. The dictionary, the Hebrew dictionary I looked up when reviewing this word says, by implication it means to love. In judgment, which we deserve, Habakkuk says, remember that Lord, you love us. You love your people. So deliver us. It calls to mind the great words of the Lord in Deuteronomy where the Lord says, For I, the Lord your God, am a merciful God. He is a loving God. I will not leave you or, for, or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers. Remember, Lord, your great love for us. We see that even though this is a conversation between God, if you look at verse 1, it says, according to the Shigianoth, and then if you flip to the last page, the last verse, excuse me, of Habakkuk 3, we see it's to the choir master with stringed instruments, which seems to indicate that the prophet knew that this would be published. And the reason the prophet would have published this is so that the people of Judah would join him in this prayer. That prayer for revival, for the revelation, and that God would remember his mercy. And congregation, I think this is a wonderful model for prayer. What is it that is uncertain for you in the future? Pray this prayer for that thing. Lord, revive our church. Reveal your will for our church. And remember this church in love. Lord, revive my future. Reveal your will for my future. Remember me in love. Lord, revive my unsaved family members. Reveal yourself to my unsaved family members. Remember your love for me. What is the thing that you are uncertain about this year? Practice this prayer. Let us not also forget, congregation, do we still not live in the era of judgment? Peter tells us judgment is coming for all of us. It's appointed once for man to die and then afterwards the judgment. We'll all stand before God. Likewise, we are told that judgment begins in the household of God. We will be the first to be judged. All of us will stand before God. All of us will confess our shortcomings to Him. But look at what Habakkuk does. He shows us the model of how to go before the Lord with confidence to plead for the mercy of God. Remember me, Lord, and your love for me in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we obviously know the New Testament tells us that we will be spared of judgment in Christ. That's what the prophet is astounded by in verses 3 through 15. He's astounded with this merciful salvation. He goes, think of this in verses 1 through 2, in the quietness of prayer. And then he goes to being astounded with a vision of God. God responds to Habakkuk's prayer. And verse 3 says, He comes. 
Yet when God comes to Habakkuk in this vision, he doesn't appear in Jerusalem or in the temple. It says that God appears in Timan and Mount Paran, both of which locations are not in Israel. Instead, in the vision of God coming to Habakkuk's aid, he's coming from the south of Israel. He's coming from, listen to this, Edom. Edom. A place where God was not found in the ancient world. You see, this vision is actually supposed to remind you and I of something. It's supposed to remind us that God has been in Edom before. This is not God's first visit to Mount Paran. This is when, this is to remind us that God led Israel through the wilderness. So God appears in this vision twice. And the first time he appears, you see in verse 4, he appears as brightness. A flash of light. He sees God as a bright light. And this is supposed to remind us of God's thundering on the top of Mount Sinai. Where Israel stood at the, ba- at the mount at the base of the mount, and they praised God for bringing down Pharaoh, verse 5, with pestilence and plague. There in the wilderness, they trembled before the nations of Canaan, and God stood there, as it says in verse 6, and He measured the earth. And He shook the nations of Canaan, even though they were filled with fear and trembling, not wanting to go up, rathering having stayed in Egypt, God, if you will, butchered Canaan. He sliced it up. The kings and princes of Canaan, look at what it says, verse 6, they looked as if they were eternal mountains and everlasting hills. This is supposed to remind us that when they, the spies went into the land of Canaan and they came back with that fearful report, we'll never be able to Remove them. What does it say? He stood and shook, measured the earth. He looked and shook the, na- the, the nations. His were the everlasting ways. God had promised them I will bring you out of exile to a place I have prepared for you. He has saved his people from exile before. Israel, like Habakkuk, didn't want to be in exile. Israel, in Egyptian exile, would be oppressed. They would be discouraged. They very much had an uncertain future. Yet, did God's promises fail? Was God hamstrung by Pharaoh? No. In fact, God led them out of there, we read from Deuteronomy 5, with a mighty arm. Mighty hand, excuse me, and an outstretched arm. That's we see God's first appearance in Habakkuk 3. And then his third appearance, or excuse me, his second appearance, is that he is revealed as a warrior. If you flip back to uh, Habakkuk chapter 1, Babylon is described in verse 6 as a bitter and a hasty Nation. Verse 7, they are uh, portrayed as dreaded and fearsome. 
verse 8, Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than evening wolves. Uh, the horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. Verse 9, they come for violence. They're described as this incredible superpower, which no nation would have any uh, chance at fighting them, especially little divided Judah. Yet the picture of God changes from one of light to that of a warrior. In fact, not only do all the nations bow before God, but we see all of the earth bows before God. Even the rivers split apart. The mountains writhe. The sun and moon stand still, verse 11, before His spear. He marches through the earth and ultimately He will crush, verse 13, the head of the wicked. The God of light saved Israel once. The warrior God will save Israel again. Here's the teaching congregation. He will crush Babylon. He will crush every evil. Every sin will be vanquished. And He did it for His people. Look at verse 13. You went out for the salvation of your people. For the salvation of your Anointed. That word in Hebrew, anointed, is Messiah. That is, that God doesn't destroy the wicked just for the sake of destroying the wicked. But He will bring judgment upon Babylon that He might save His people. Let us be reminded that God does all things for the salvation of His church. God would ultimately crush Babylon. Even though they were the mighty and the strong. We know history tells us, Bible history tells us, that Cyrus would come. That Persia would crush Babylon. And would restore the nation of Israel. But Israel would never be what they once were. There would never be a king like David. There would never be a temple like Solomon's. But listen to this. But through the crushing of Israel, then Babylon's judgment, verse 13, the Messiah would come. And here's the irony of all ironies. As we've reflected on this whole last month in Advent, the Messiah is not the one who does the crushing. But the Messiah, in his incarnation, would be the one crushed. Another minor prophet, Micah, says these words He will again have compassion upon us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast our sins into the depths of the sea. Who will be crushed here? 
the Messiah. Sometimes we read this passage and we think there's this ethereal ball of sins that God's going to stomp on. That's not what Micah's prophesying. He says on the cross, Christ will be crushed underfoot. On the cross, the Messiah would be crushed. On the cross, he would be cast into the sea of God's wrath. And look at verse 13. He says he does it for you. For your salvation. He is astounded to know that God would lead Israel through judgment to salvation. How much more so should we be astounded then by the marvelous grace of God for us in Christ? That the very curse and judgment of God excuse me, the very curse and judgment that God pronounces on Nebuchadnezzar, listen to this, our Savior would bear Himself. This vision shows us that God is a warrior who saves His people. But let us never forget that our salvation has come through the death of our Savior, Jesus Christ. This astounds the prophet. And it astounds the Christian. What wondrous love is this? Well, let's look at our third point and then we'll conclude. In this final section of chapter 3, the prophet again expresses his own thoughts and feelings, verses 16 through 19. But prior to this vision, he expresses feelings of anxiety. He expresses feelings of dread about the future invasion. But God tells him in chapter 2, verse 3, He tells him to wait. And then in 2.20, He tells him to be silent. And now He takes this advice to heart. Verse 16, I hear, and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sounds. Rottenness enters my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. What is being described here is not the attitude of resignation, nor is he trying to summon up courage so that he can cope with the situation. I think he's embodying what chapter 2, verse 4 told him to do. To have faith. That he will live. Much like David did in Psalm 131. I have stilled and quieted my soul. He has seen what God has done in the past in saving Israel from Egypt. And he has heard what God has revealed that he will do in the future. Now, he says, I can trust myself into the hands of God. He is waiting here for that day of salvation. That final day of salvation. Even though There's a gloomy backdrop. Even though he has an uncertain future, he is awaiting the day of the Lord. He recognizes that things may still not go well for Israel. Verse 17, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, nor the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. He is describing the whole agricultural community 
of Palestine. If the produce of the land is gone, continuing on, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Here he's describing their jobs, their food, even if that is all gone. Listen to these words. Yet I will rejoice. He resolves to delight in God notwithstanding. Because even when all is gone, this is the comfort that God gives him. God is not. Even when everything else has been taken from him, his Lord has not been taken from him. Babylon is coming. The trial is coming. Uncertainty is coming. But the vision shows him that God will be with him. What a remarkable reminder for us as well that God will not always remove the trial from us. But God will always be with us within the trial, supporting us and saving us. This is what the prophet rejoices in. God has revealed to him that salvation is coming in the Messiah. And so Habakkuk resolved that he could trust in the Lord. He could trust in the knowledge of the coming Messiah who would save him from his sins. Congregation, please see that real contentment is found in the Lord. Too often we allow other circumstances to control us. Our circumstances in this world to dictate our feelings about the future. But let us be reminded that circumstances always change. But the eternal God never does. He has promised you, Deuteronomy 31, that I will not leave you or forsake you. Let's conclude this morning. Even though the immediate prospect was one of hardship and uncertainty, Habakkuk was able to rise above the uncertainty because God loved him in Jesus Christ. Like Paul, he can say, I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty in hunger, abundance in need. Listen to this. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Knowing God and relying on Him are the secrets to Habakkuk's strength. Let us likewise, in the face of life's challenges, look back to the cross and be reminded of God's great sacrifice and love for us that we might grow in joy and strength as we await the day of salvation. Amen. Let us pray. Merciful Father, we do give you thanks for the prophecy of Habakkuk. Lord, we know that there was an uncertain future for him, and for many of us there is an uncertain future as well. Yet, Lord, we know in the seeking of salvation that we shall be astounded and consoled with him, that God has been merciful to Israel in the past. He has been merciful to us in Christ. Cause us, Lord, to look up in faith to the Savior and find comfort in him even though sometimes we are filled with great fear 
and anxiety. Father, we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.